you do like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Murdocracy, the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Hey, Sammy, how are you this week? I'm fine. I didn't have COVID. How are you? How is COVID? <laughs> What's COVID like? I haven't heard much about this COVID thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this little known thing. I know it's pretty hipster, but uh, yeah, I'll tell you about it. Uh, no, it was okay. So I caught it. Um, Do you know which variant was it really... was? No, no, I only did a, a, a rat test. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I would know if I did like a PCR, but no, I, I just, I got COVID. Um, I'd kind of been feeling, I'd been, I'd been procrastinating a bit at work that day. And then I was mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe I'm just like not loving what I'm doing. And then I kind of realized that I was actually feeling a bit dodgy. So I, I did a test on a whim and I was actually surprised to see that I had it. Um, but I'm, I'm boosted, you know, I've, I've had three doses. And so for me, it was like pretty, pretty, uh, not not too bad, although I am paranoid because I read a, a viral Twitter post, which is where I get all my medical information yeah, of course. about um, about um, long COVID and the idea that one of the places they think that people get long COVID from, or one of the reasons is because that, um, you know, by exerting yourself before you've like fully recovered, mm. your body kind of develops an, uh, uh, an a, a immune system disease because it trains your body into being like, I'm still under attack. And so that's right. why people have had, you know, symptoms like, you know, brain fog or headaches or lethargy for like a year because the virus has kind of been dealt with, but their body still feels like it's under attack. So are so, you taking it easy I mean, at all? Yeah. I've been trying to lay pretty low. Um, but I mean, what a, I feel like we've been saying this a bit, but what a time I'm just, <laughs> everything in the news is like, is de- is pretty depressing. Like, I mean, the Kimberly Kitching stuff this week was I-, I found to be pretty ghoulish. Well, the the way it's been covered, uh, particularly is exhausting. Like, there's a new the Daily Telegraph has a front page story today by Emma Hassar, um, you know, the, the ex Labour MP who's also got you know claims that old Labour treated terribly, and and then there's the counter analysis that kind of comes in from people going, well, her former staff said she was a bully as well, and. It's become mm. this whole thing where um, I've realized it's very depressing, but if you're in Australian politics and you die, you still don't get to escape Australian politics. Like, like even, yeah. even yeah. in death, Kimberly Kitching's life is being used as a political weapon against each party. Yeah, so Kimberly Kitching, um, I didn't intro, is, mm. um, or I guess was a Labour MP who died suddenly in her, in her early 50s and was well known to be, a, you know, quite a, a factional kind of warrior. So really, you know, in the in the games of politics mm-hmm. and, and she was competing at this moment to keep her, her seat. So there, there, were, there were questions about whether, because of, um, you know, kind of jostling from other politicians, whether she would be able to keep her existing seat because she's already in parliament. So she died of a heart attack and and, and very soon afterwards, um, her her kind of allies within the Labor Party began to use this this really unfortunate event um, 
as kind of fodder being like, you know, she, essentially mm-hmm. it, it didn't take very long for people to say that she was killed by the stress of potentially losing her seat, which I found to be. That, um, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the thing. See, there's, no, no, there's two things here. One is the discussion of does Labour Party have a culture problem, for example, or, you know, what Kimberly Kitching's claims of being bullied by uh, a, a cohort of, of parliamentarians in the Labour Party. Is there any validity to that? That's a thing that needs investigating, or at least it can, it can be and should be discussed about cultural problems in political parties overall. Mm. Because if, mm. you know, if the Liberal Party was accused of this and has been accused of similar things many times in the past, Labour has gone very hard on criticizing them for it. So, you know, it, it for it behooves Labour to take any accusation seriously so to show that they're the level of weight they put to issues like workplace bullying, harassment, etc., aren't uh, aren't partisan. It's you know don't have a political edge to them, but they actually are concerned about these issues. That's one thing. The other is the way they it's all being written about, which is you're right, which is entirely about the fact that Kimberly Kitching was killed by Labour Party bullying, and that's a massive health claim, um, and you know scientific claim, and and all these things which needs. To either be backed up right fucking away or should not be being made at all yeah and the, the way you see people who who really do have no um you know not knowledge of this opining about it everyone from you know scott morrison saying oh you know this really needs to be looked into to you know peter credlin saying this is proof of the labor party's women's problem which to me reads as a really naked attempt to try and neutralize this advantage that the labor party has at the moment because mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the government, you know, it's been well documented, has had a problem with women voters, um, particularly since the Brittany Higgins stuff. Uh, it, it's just gross. And look, you know, in, in a weird way, you know, it was well known that Kimberly Kitching was played pretty hard in politics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a way, the fact that her death is kind of being used to continue to be uh, like as a weapon against mm. her, her political enemies, may- maybe that is actually the best way to, to celebrate Your her Honor, contribution who to knows? politics. Who knows, honestly. <laughs> there, there, there is a thing that right now, like if you go on the YouTube channel for Sky News, I was researching this for my News Weekly podcast, the amount of videos in the last three days from Sky News that are on YouTube right now, where, you know, different programs, mainstream, uh, uh, main programs on Sky News After Dark, talking about Kimberly Kitching again and again and again and again, with largely the same two, three guests again and again and again, is really quite mm. telling about how much of this is now just right side of politics versus left side of politics stuff. Yeah, you know, more things to f- feed the beast, feed mm-hmm, the machine. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of the machine, uh, we will be talking about a, quite a few things today. In particular, there's there's one. It, this is there's some pretty grim stuff in here, so just give, we'll warn you ahead of time. But uh, it is a bit of a serious one. But as always, thank you to our patrons who make doing this uh, possible. It means a lot that they support mm-hmm. us. And if you would like to support what we do uh, and continue doing it, um, the best way to do is to go to patreon.com slash murdocracy to help us out. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone who helps. So Absolutely. Far. Uh, Cam's COVID recovery um, is not cheap. So let's get this going, folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, ivermectin is yeah, exactly. uh, you know, it's very, very hard to get. I'm going to pay you know, like uh, Black international shipping. So that, yeah, all, exactly. that all adds up. <laughs> so for our first piece of News Court News of the Week, Last week, the first Northern Territory police officer to be tried for a murder of a First Nations person since the Deaths in Custody Royal Commission was found not guilty of killing 19-year-old Kumanjay Walker. 
as always, these cases are pretty complicated because they are both, you know, highly uh, specific and, and often complex legal cases that, you know, depends on things like the jurisdiction where they mm-hmm. occur and the actual administration of the case, while also becoming like almost like symbolic of these broader issues about racism, colonialism, and of course, our criminal justice system. But it's what happened afterwards that uh, is really relevant to us and, and turned some heads. Once the case finished, the media floodgates opened because journalists were allowed to write stories about uh, or details about the case of the story that they couldn't. Um, and in the in particular, the Australian covered it with headlines like "The Unwanted Baby Who Became a Violent Abuser." Uh, J bashed him, but I loved him. Uh, uh, sorry, Kuman J bashed me, but I loved him. And watch the video. Moment cop Zachary Rolf shoots teen Kuman J Walker. According to Amanda Mead, it was criticised by Indigenous journalists across Australia, including uh, the ABC's Bridget Brennan, who wrote on Twitter, this is traumatising, unethical and appalling reporting that should never have been published by The Australian. If you work there, if you are a former employee, if you're a leader in this industry, say something loudly. Sammy, uh, this is yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot in this and it's, it's a really, really sad case, but did you notice this reporting as it was happening? The one that really caught me by shock. Oh, look, there's a th- part of it. There's, there's some of it that I anticipated. You know, there, there's a thing that happens. It's particularly around crime cases where after um, you know, that some of the reporting tends to be ghoulish. And that's regardless of race. That's regardless of racial issues and stuff. It doesn't matter who the victim is. It doesn't matter who the perpetrator is. People tend to look for the ghoulish details. That's one element. The other is the fact that, yes, this was an indigenous man killed by a policeman. And so I anticipated that much of the same way that U.S. media does this, where, you know, they then try to find justifications from the uh, from the killed person's life to make it seem like the, you know, to vindicate the police. Um, this is something you mm. see in American police quite often. So in American media quite often as well. Um, and it's very prominent when the person who's killed is a black person. Um, that Those elements are there. But the one that really shocked me was the moment cop Zachary Rolf shoots Dean Kumjaya Walker watched the video. I thought after the entire Christchurch thing, you know, three years ago, the Christchurch attack, when uh, so many, when Sky News, for example, was got into trouble for replaying the footage of the killer going into the mosque and shooting people again and again and again, that some level of um, consideration had been put into place about how often they would show, or, or even showing at all, footage of people dying, footage of people being killed particularly. And yet here this was, and it was like a bonus feature, like a Patreon subscriber bonus episode kind of a thing where <laughs> they literally, uh. the way they presented it was watch the video and it was because subscription based website, the Australian, you have to subscribe to watch the video. So there's almost like an enticing thing for people. It, it was very shocking, to, even to someone as cynical as myself, that they would put that up there at all. Lucky subscribers can see the moment that this person died. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, oh, it's, it, it, I found it to be yeah really grotesque, and I'm I'm I think quite attuned to the issues in in crime reporting generally because mm-hmm. look I, there's this kind of growing school of thought um, that critiques crime reporting as we know it because I mean a lot of the crime reporting that we see is X person arrested for this this is what the cops say and or if it's done through court reporting this is often what the prosecution says right. and. This kind of whole beat, you know, this 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 section of journalism, is really set up uh, often to benefit police narratives 
and also uh, in a way that kind of is is very like uh, tabloidy. You know, this like look at this person. You know, it's often like you you see it in in mm-hmm. like uh, there are publications in Australia, like like you know News Corp uh, publications like the Daily Telegraph will have like Instagram model caught with three caps of MDMA or something right. like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and. And and it's 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 you know supposed to be titillating and that kind of stuff, but I mean this is kind of set up in a way that unfairly you know affects um, you know particularly like marginalized people, but people who've, who've done things that you know we are increasingly understanding, particularly around things like drugs uh, and domestic abuse, um, are are like. I guess like uh, discrimination in our society that's then reflected in the reporting. So like, you know, for instance, the, I mean, this is particularly relevant because it was a first nations person killed by a white police officer, but Mm -hmm. a lot of crime reporting, you know, crime journalists who want to get good stories have to talk to the police because the police are the people who have those information and you can either wait for the official statement or you can get details beforehand. If you want to get details beforehand, you've got to have a good relationship with police, right? Like you, you want to, have something where they think that if they give it to you, you know, they'll get a good run. And so this kind of, um, you know, I guess inherent incentive makes it so that you get a lot of reporting around crime is biased towards police. And as we know, like, you know, there's a lot of calls police for police reform. You know, there's a lot of issues about how police end up lying. But despite that, their like opinion is often represented in reporting as kind of gospel. Like, you know, if someone says to you something, you know, kind of controversial normally, you'd be like, well, I'm going to go check that mm-hmm. with, with someone else. But often police are kind of just taking out their word. Well, there's, it's not just that element, which is a huge part of it. There's also the fact that we now in crime reporting have seen this weird surge of the true crime podcast, etc., and how... You know, there's been a lot of comment. Mm. There's been a lot of commentary around so many of these cases having to be revisited because, at the time, you know, for example, um, whenever they do true crime podcasts, one common theme many people have pointed out is police bungling chain of evidence, police messing up, you know, certain things mm. or maliciously covering up certain information. Um, yeah, and that's an element. And in the in America and in UK, there's been a lot of commentary around how many of the true crime stories, podcasts particularly, are always start with a dead woman in, you know, a gr- in gruesome circumstances. And, and that yeah. seems to be the titillating hook. In Australia, we've had more than one very successful, very prominent, and I would argue some very, very good true crime podcasts starting with dead indigenous boy, dead indigenous man. Um, there seems to be a certain... Um, appetite for a particular person being dead and then the investigations around that. And I find that very worrying as well. The other thing I find worrying or strange, it was I thought there was a tonal shift here for the Australian. Because particularly the story which was headlined uh, The Unwanted Baby... No, sorry, the ma- um, Kum- uh, Kumanjai ba- bashed me, but I loved him, which is an interview with his ex-girlfriend, I believe. Um, it was more... Um, Herald Sunish, if or Daily, Daily Telegraphish, than the Australian, I felt because the Australian t- tries to present itself very often as a more mature broadsheet compared to the others. Mm. This had a very tabloid feel to the front page of the Australian, which I was, I just, I don't know, it just felt like it's a strange thing. But I noticed a tonal shift in their coverage, which is seemed unlike their normal voice, at least. Yeah, it's it's good that you mentioned that normal stuff because traditionally the Australian actually has a good reputation of mm-hmm. covering Indigenous affairs. So you know, 
Like, I mean, th- th- I'm, that's not saying that they're perfect. They're, all of Australian media is far from perfect. But the resources and attention, at least, that they've given to things like, um, you know, closing the gap and the issues associated with that has actually been, like, more than other publications. So, so that's something that they, I think, in the past, have hang, hung their hat on. Right. But that, yeah, you're so right. Like, it, it, this kind of, a lot of this coverage went into that kind of, that really gross, like, there's only two narratives. It's either... Some like and and I think this was partially you know partially was because of we got a, a result in the courts that said that you can do this, but all the coverage afterwards was uh the the man who was killed was uh you know an abuser like all this awful stuff literally you know like you said sharing the moment that he died interviewing um victims and presenting mm-hmm. it in a ways that he was an, uh, a harmful abuser and of course like these are allegations that they reported but you know losing that kind of nuance that like you know even though this man was found not guilty that doesn't mean that like he necessarily did everything right like Mm -hmm. as in like if there was a different police officer who was sent that day maybe um this man would still be alive i mean that's a thing that will be i'm sure investigated further but like you know the criminal charges are found he's not guilty of this and also that like the man who was killed was also you know a a victim of the circumstances that he was in he was a complex person and to make him into this like you know, essentially like a caricature of like a of a, a, a harmful um, criminal um, and, and, and literally to show the moment that he died. Like I, I, the question that people ask, which I think is right, is like if this was like a, a, just a, a white guy, like a normal white guy who was killed by a white cop, would we be showing this? Would we be going to the same amount of detail? I'm not sure that we would be. I think that we're playing into these un- like gross stereotypes of indigenous people of, of like, you know, domestic violence, which you know happens in these communities. That's a real thing. But but feeling okay to be like, because we know this, we can kind of go f- like fully in on him in a really gross way. And um I mean the whole the whole story is really sad. Yeah, the entire thing is sad. And I think that really is where it comes down to in the end. The the what it says about, you know, communities, indigenous communities and what they're going through, what it says about um, you know, so much of the domestic abuse issues, uh, substance abuse issues, and then policing problems we have in, you know, in the, in some of these communities, which have been brought up time and time again. There's there's the individual case and the particular of the individual case and the and the court court, you know, results of that. And then there's the wider cultural context of it. And neither of those things are inspiring at all. Okay, moving on. Um, our friends at the Australians for Murdoch Royal Commission have launched a new stage of their campaign. According to Sally Rugg, who is the organiser who we've spoken to in the past, the 40,000 people who've signed up to be part of the group are promising to actively fact-check News Corp during the election. This is a quote from an email. Uh, Supporters will play an active role in monitoring for political bias and misrepresentation of facts in the news media, building a national, state-by-state and hyper-local body of evidence to further our case for a Royal Commission to expose and remedy the harms to society of media market concentration. Sammy, do you think something like this could have a big impact? So there was a really um, interesting study done a while ago called, and you can read about it on the conversation. They did a, a summary of it back in uh, March of this, uh, uh, March 4th, I believe, when the piece had come out. I was researching it for uh, uh, another research paper, and it was called like fact-checking can, can actually harm trust in media. So basically a bunch of different analysts and, you know, Media media lecturers um, at uh, University of Melbourne, at La Trobe, and a couple of other universities, including UT Austin uh, in America, did a thing around fact checking. 
um, and they tried a whole bunch of different uh, you know experiments and and, and watched the and then surveyed the results. They found that fact checking in political journalism actually has this weird effect of damaging all political journalism's credibility. And the idea was basically oh. that. That you know, if a politician, for example, says something, and uh, and you report what he said, then you publish a correction on what he said, saying actually what he said is wrong. It doesn't damage the politician's credibility so much as it damages the credibility of the reporting. For you know, people hold the the journalists um, uh, interesting. Uh, they hold the journalists to account for reporting something that turned out to be false. And then after that, that um, holding of account spreads wider to all political news around the subject. So not just the one newspaper that did, but everyone who does it. Now, you know, obviously Sally Rugg and, and this entire group, their job isn't to make political reporting um, more credible, you know, with the exception mm, of the news mm, score. Yeah. They're, if they're fact-checking something, they, the after-effects of that are not their problem or their responsibility. But... It is an interesting phenomenon that if you fact check News Corp on, you know, how it covers the election, you're also going to damage the credibility of the ABC, Guardian, The Age, everyone else in political reporting. So, you know, if one goes down, it kind of takes everyone else down with them. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's kind of, uh, that's unfortunate (laughs) to to put it bluntly. (laughs) I I do think though, (laughs) in that situation, the really, the the, the onus there is like, that's essentially, I mean, and technically, that effect is created by the fact-checking. But really, the responsibility uh, lies with the people who are telling the fabrication or, yes. or presenting it in a misleading way. And so, like, you know, by doing this, yes, you might kind of, um, you know, I guess, undermine faith in the media generally. But also, I have this theory, and I'd love to hear what you think on this. Okay. And, and maybe there's some research out there. I think that while there may be falling trust in the media Mm -hmm. i think that people more than ever have immense trust in their preferred publications and so when people say i don't like the media that doesn't mean that they for instance don't like sky news australia doesn't mean that they specifically don't like the abc it means that they don't like them like writ large and Mm. so like you know like that allows them to have a skepticism often sometimes a healthy skepticism but often like a unhealthy skepticism generally of journalism but that doesn't necessarily mean that all, all like all journalists and all journalism outlets are universally being undermined by that because you know publications through whatever means are able to build up that trust even as maybe faith is falling from people generally in the in the media what do you think do, do you think that like maybe like we shouldn't be focusing on for instance uh how much people trust the media in inverted commas but like how much do they trust you know one of a news source or a handful of news sources that they're getting their information from i think that's very true because we're also seeing you know if you watch a lot of sky news you you watch them say things like you know they, Rowan dean will come on or for example or andrew Bolt will come on they'd be like the media is telling you this but we'll tell you different it's like but you are the media like how are you distancing yourself from the media you're literally <laughs> the media yeah the mainstream media yeah, like, you're like in like one of the biggest media companies in Australia, a part of what the biggest like media company in the world, and I'm watching you on my TV, and you've got ads running. Like you're the media. That's how uh, it but works. Sammy, they're being silenced. <laughs> no, they're they're being absolutely censored. So, but you're right. Like there's people who watch them and trust them, and there's people who watch ABC and trust the ABC, and not the or not Sky News. And there's you know, and then there's the people who read, for example, Crikey and Guardian, and trust those, but not the others. 
that's a big part of it for sure and then there's the people who many of them don't watch any of this stuff anymore and get all the news from friendly jordies or joe rogan or whoever um we have had that stepping friends away. of the pod <laughs> yeah exactly friends of the pod indeed so yeah we've had that walking away uh, a little bit from mainstream media and everything but i do think trust is down honestly i do think overall trust is down yes the fragmentation element is there but i think you're more likely to see something like um you know uh, people being taking rumors as as gospel in this upcoming election more pr- more prominently than we did in previous elections you know the, the presence of facebook and twitter and instagram and tiktok stories yeah. getting a, a wider you know narrative will be quite surprising i think to many analysts yeah no i th- i think that's right i also think that it it's partly a um almost like a heuristic that allows them to pick and choose what truth they want to believe because, you know, people like I'm thinking particularly like, you know, people like ABC and, you know, nine and, and crikey and guardian all fake news will happily like share an article from like crikey. If it confirms something they already believe, like, you know, if it's like an anti labor article, like that, they won't be like, Oh, I don't know. I don't really trust crikey. They'll be like, hell yeah. Like this this is exactly what I already think. Um, it's more of a way to kind of pick and choose what they believe. It's like choose your own adventure, but for reality, which yes, is um, exactly <laughs> not not ideal. <laughs> more bad news for physical paper lovers. Um, nine Zoe Samuels reports that the Norwegian-owned Norske Skog, who we've spoken about before, brilliant mm-hmm. name, is in the middle of renegotiating contracts with newspaper and magazine publishers as it battles to keep its only Australian paper mill running and profitable. Um, She said that paper is expensive because of the amount of energy needed to produce it. Publishing companies are competing against packaging and toilet paper companies for limited fiber resources globally, which are driving up costs. Uh, Sammy, I I think that they said that it's unlikely that News Corp and uh, and Nine Papers are are going to stop printing, but it's going to increase Mm -hmm. prices. But do you, I mean, like we've spoken about this before, I feel like this is just the inevitable march of history where at some point these major publications are going to, if not stop publishing altogether, really, really restrict their circulation to like, you know, a couple of metro areas, right? I mean, I remember I, I've asked my students this um, in university a few times and, you know, every term I, I take a survey at the start of the class and how many people read physical newspapers and it's always zero. <laughs> like it is, there are no people in their twenties <laughs> reading physical newspapers. And so even if you just think in terms of like habit forming behavior and stuff within a decade or two, that means that majority of the reading and you know, money spending populace of Australia and probably the rest of the world will not be reading a physical newspaper at all. And so, even if you decrease costs or whatever, it's not going to have a difference. Just people don't think of it as the template that they're interested in. People hardly go to the newspaper's website. You know, they they get their their news through aggregated yeah. social media feeds. They don't. So yeah, they, I think this is it's as dead as the dodo, unfortunately, and it's a shame because I love a physical newspaper, but you know I'm not doing any stakeouts, so I need to hide my face behind one, so it's fine. Okay, can I ask you, is mm. this a rose-tinted view of history, that the idea that people in the past, because they had these physical papers where it wasn't decided on an algorithm who decides, I think you're interested in this, I think these are the Facebook groups you're part of, so these are things I'm going to present to you, mm. but physical newspapers which 
is considering the reader, of course, but yes. is more general. And it is also the, you know, the editors and the sub editors being like, well, this story may not necessarily be the most, you know, um, like, like, you know, wouldn't drive the physical equivalent of clicks, but, you know, is important, you know, war in Yemen or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put that, you know, front and center. Are we losing that well-rounded kind of consumption of media where people are like, oh, like I'll read some more outside of what I would potentially, you know, always read? Or am I just being like, you know, too kind of pessimistic about now and, and optimistic about the past mm-hmm. or I guess the still existent people who read the papers, but people just like, you know, skimming through anyway right. and only read the things that they're interested in. Look, this, I mean, I spent so much time reading about this and, and, and studying it and, and kind of teaching it because it's a big part of the discussion around uh, the way news is changing. One of the, sub, one of the subjects I'm, I'm teaching this term at University of Melbourne is called new media storytelling. It's about a focus on new media and uh, compared to the old. One of the big things was in the past, we know for a fact that newspapers had a general um, you know, data gathering enterprise, if you will, which is purely based on, on subscriptions, on which suburbs bought their papers, you know, whether the suburbs are affluent, what the racial makeup of the suburbs were, that kind of information you could get. But overall, the kind of granular, you know, this person likes stories about this particular topic and also shops from here and also has this much money in their account and also goes there on holiday. The way we can kind of pinpoint information and personal data now was not present then. So that was one of the things where they didn't focus so much on what the consumer, what the reader wants as much as, you know, we do now when we do our, our news gathering and, and news publication. The other thing was that, was I find fascinating is the way we interact with newspapers. One of the big topics of discussion always, or like a quiz question, or just a getting to know you question in the past used to be, what section of the newspaper do you read first? You know, if you're a kid, it was the comic section. If you're a teenager, it's the mm-hmm. sports section. If you're, you know, an adult, it's the finance or the political affairs or the foreign affairs section. Um, but people then read the whole thing largely. Or if, you know, you were more likely to read something from another section because you browsed the newspaper. Though, you know, oh, you don't go to the Age website or the Guardian website or Crikey's website and browse it. You generally are led there by something else. Yeah. And no that's such I'm not, a big I'm not change. Like, I'm going to check out the Guardian. I'm not like I'm going to check out the Guardian mm. sports section today. Yeah, exactly. No. And it's such a big change in how we consume news in that. And we've seen this happen. You know, there's been a big commentary in America when they're talk, uh, trying to save some of the more, um, the smaller metro papers like you know, the Miami Herald and things. Um, David Simon, the guy who produced the, uh, created The Wire and um, did a bunch of other TV shows, including Tremi, uh, he was on a congressional mm-hmm. panel and he said, the day I see a reporter from the Huffington Post at a local council hearing is the day I will admit that newspapers, are, oh, it's okay for newspapers to die. Because the main thing <laughs> we lose when newspapers die and that kind of approach to journalism dies is small niche stories. There's, I really think there's a, that you can chart a, a rise in corruption within political parties and within local politics with the decline of coverage around local politics and resources to put reporters in local politics. How many court reporters does every newspaper have? How few of them there are left? You know, these things have an impact on holding truth to account or holding power to account. And so yeah, it's it's been a tragic thing, but also time moves on, time marches on, technology changes. Maybe we'll come up with an alternative. I don't think we've replaced the newspaper and, and the way we interacted with it um, in a way that's been good for society yet. 
Yes. <laughs> that was a long monologue I went because, on. I'm sorry, but I, I, I love that no, topic. No, 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 I, I, no, no, I, I'm, I'm interested. I'm just like, it, it's, uh, again, we're coming back to a theme of, of, of a grim episode today. But mm. Let's move on, shall mm. we? <laughs> um, one of the big stories last week that we didn't get a chance to cover because I was ill was um, a huge scoop from the Australian. Yeah. Last week, the Australian's weekly media column the, the jewel in their media reporting crown led with a story about how ABC journalist Tom Joyner had received a massage in his downtime. Mm. He, here's the story. Uh, Joyner had just spent three weeks covering the war in Ukraine after being in uh, working, you know, for many days straight in a literal war zone. A Joyner and another journalist was replaced by other ABC correspondents and took some time off and went to Poland. While there, he shared to his personal Instagram account some stories, so rapidly disappearing, quite informal content, about getting a massage. Uh, and this, according to the Australian's Nick Tabakov, raised the hackles of at least one ABC staff member who essentially said it was like a bad look and insensitive. Sammy, what do you think? Was this a bad look for the ABC for a war correspondent to be getting a massage in his downtime? I mean, look, I, the easy look, the easy punt here is Nick Tabakov did something really ridiculous and, and the Australian should be focusing on far more important issues than this and all those things. That is a part of it, yes, definitely. Another part of it, or, and another very important part of it is that war correspondents aren't, like, they also need a break sometimes and it's okay to take a break and it's okay to have a whiskey and knock back something or, you know, go uh, get a massage, which happens in war zones and in times of crisis and things like that that these are all human behaviors i think we're in the overshare world so i don't know if putting it on instagram stories was the best thing or the smartest thing i thought i and nick um, sorry um the abc journalist tom joiner has said you know on social media that he put it up to show that these are part of the experiences of a war correspondent when you're carrying a camera for three weeks you know running you you develop muscle pain etc those things right, those, but, just to jump in those yeah. cameras like that they carry as well as someone who's who i you know worked very briefly with a camera and abc mm. um they're big like, they're yeah they're huge. not they're like lugging yeah. it around yeah like <laughs> you, you would actually get muscle pain that would actually inhibit your ability to do your job there, yeah so there's definitely that aspect the thing i always think about is if you are a ukrainian and you're watching the ABC's coverage of this, or you hear about this, or you see, you know, um, Tom Joyner's page, whether you're a Ukrainian in Australia or a Ukrainian in Ukraine, however you come across it, you will go, that's deeply inappropriate. If someone was in a war zone in, you know, in Pakistan, doing coverage of war on terror in Pakistan, there's massive war happening, and then they also post a video of themselves getting a massage because they're taking a break. I don't know that I wouldn't have reacted with the same level of outrage um, as many people did, which is, you know, I think, Ooh. and I think that's an interesting thing, which is it's a human reaction to have that outrage and, and whether or not Nick Tabakov should have made it a story and whether it's worthy of a story is a separate thing. But I do think posting it to Instagram might've been in poor taste in retrospect. Oh, okay. So I should disclose that I I know Tom, mm. uh, not not super well, but I, I really like his reporting. You know, I, yeah, I know he's a brother, phenomenal journalist, yeah. excellent reporting. Yeah, yeah. I'm not questioning yeah. any of that. Incredible. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna like really strongly disagree with you here. Mm. Where I mean, I I know what you're saying. Like, it, it is valid for people to have whatever feelings, particularly mm. when someone's you know actually being affected by war. Of course, I would never say you shouldn't feel that way. Um, that being said, like. 
I mean, I just can't imagine anything that was less of a story. Like this was a very reasonable thing. Um, Tom's journalism in particular, like I have such admiration for it because he has this, he's an incredible photographer and videographer. He has this um, ability to, to elevate these small moments, small stories, ordinary interactions with people and places to something that tells you a lot about their lives, who they are, what it's like for people who aren't yourself Mm -hmm. Uh, and him you know like documenting going to poland getting massage from a physio who did that on the side it's just another example of like he managed to make an interesting you know like i looked at them and i was like that's kind of interesting um so the fact that like i think actually what he was doing i mean like one it's his private instagram i know he's a journalist but like it wasn't like this is the abc branded account um, it was kind of an informal thing and, you know, and also just because like he'd worked 17 days in a row where he, you know, very mm-hmm. reasonably was concerned about being in a war, like, you know, yeah. facing possible death, like him getting a massage, which is again, ma- maybe by some people presented as like a, you know, a kind of a, a treat, but for someone who is using their body and their work, it's also kind of important. I just think it was is bullshit, and 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 this was just an example of it. Also, here's another thing, and this kind of is a kind of more interesting um, aspect of reporting, which is like, so Nick Tabakov, the guy who wrote this, yes. says he spoke to an unnamed source within the ABC, and and that kind of gives it this, you know, a little bit of meat. Oh, look at this, someone in yeah. the ABC who says that they 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 this rubbed them the wrong way. I mean, like this is an example of how like insider. Uh, uh, you know, unsourced or, or like, you know, non-publicly sourced journalism necess- might not necessarily tell you the full story because like, I'm sure that Nick spoke to someone. I'm sure that that person, like I, I, I have no reason to not believe that the fact mm, that they mm. said, oh, this doesn't look good, you know, whatever. But like, does that represent, you know, the ABC staff's, um, you know, views as a whole? Like well, no, it allows yeah, you exactly. to run run with it with a headline being like, you know, ABC staff upset at war correspondent for getting massage. But that like, although it may be technically true, someone did that. Does that actually tell you the story of how a, uh, ABC staff really feel about it? I would say based on the response, absolutely not. But it allows people to run with a story that fits their, you know, like the, the, uh, the News Corp, literally has a war against the abc they they know it's good for them yes. they know it's good it's, it's red meat for the base and also the abc is legitimately their competition mm-hmm. and so for all these reasons they presented a story that while was technically true i don't think was like honest and i think that's like it's pretty pathetic well yeah agree like so that's why i said there's two things here one is you know nick tabakov posting it on instagram stuff the other sorry nick tabakov writing the story and the other one being uh, Tom Joyner posting on Instagram. Uh, I feel like Nick Tabakov writing the story, there's no story there. It's not a good story. And it also is speaks poorly for the Australian for running it. I, I definitely believe that. And yes, I do think that if you're a journalist in the field, what you go through, what, you know, is, is people do not understand or have any knowledge of it. But posting it to his Instagram stories, for whatever reasons, I would argue might not have been the best move because of the way we are in a war right now, he's working in a war zone. There's other people in that war zone with sensitivities and their families and stuff, and just fits a wider narrative at this point. Uh, but yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't no, see the story I, I as being worthy of printing. But uh, there's, you know, there's many yeah. stories that, like we're saying, in many newspapers that for some reason get printed, and now we're discovering that you don't have to read anymore. 
sometimes you just gotta you know you gotta fill up space you gotta yeah. file something yeah. and that's what they came up with exactly uh, and finally here's here's a bit of a weird one so the company that owns realestate.com.au which is rea group is majority owned by news corp mm. at nine papers stephen brook and samantha hutchinson reported that the company has been cyber squatting which is registering domains that aren't necessarily for projects that they're actually using um, some rather strange websites. So one was multilist.com.au. If you go to there, it goes to uh, realestate.com.au, very normal. But they also found linked to the company uh, uh, findnudedude.com.au and also sexonline.com.au. Sammy, is this just savvy business? I mean, it's cyber squatting isn't a new thing, you know, going in and just buying up URLs that might come in handy later. Um I guess maybe they just figured out that uh, there's one day potentially going to be an appetite for findnudedude.com.au and and um, hey, maybe maybe they're the smart ones. Look, I'm not going to question the business savvy of NewsCorp. That is one thing that we have That's realized. Mm. And given the last two years when every single major news outlet around the world is hemorrhaging and they're somehow doing well, they're riding the wave of, you know, the, social media and and you know trust in media and all of these challenges that the world is throwing at them and somehow still earning a profit expanding doing all of these things i ain't going to question it they obviously know what they're doing yeah i'm more disappointed myself for not buying fine new dude.com.au and sexonline.com.au and redirecting them to the sammyshah.com but you know that's mm. my fault <laughs> that would have been good yeah i i actually recently registered a website i got wilson.com cam i don't know if you know there are all these like yes. crazy so like web suffixes now like you can mm-hmm. like i was looking and you can get like anything dot navy uh uh, uh dot online it's a fairly normal one have you thought about uh partaking in some of these strange uh web domains i honestly i tried to keep basically what happened was i used to have samisha.com which is s-a-m-i-s-h-a-h.com that was mine and then for, for, I, and i had it for something like 15 years and then one year yeah. i for some reason, the renewal notice went to my spam folder in uh, my email. I didn't right. see that the thing had expired until the day after it had expired. And in that time, someone swept in and bought it up. No, and I lost it. Really? So now, yeah, that's why now my website is it now? just some random person who bought all of these things. And if you if I want it, I better be willing to pay several thousand dollars to some random. I'm looking, I'm looking at samishahwright.com. Right now, and it mm-hmm. redirects to novel summary. Yeah, and it is a looks like a spammy blog that writes very short summaries of novels. Like uh, yeah, which uh, is just got, one of those uh, basically placeholder template websites. I can guarantee you, which wow. kind of yeah, you just if I want it, I go. You know, I'll have to pay them money for it. Is the way it works. So That's, I just said I just oh. set up thesamisha.com, which sounds like an egomaniac's website, nice. but in retrospect, I no, should have done. <laughs> Well, I should have done Shah.Sammy or Sammy.Shah. That would have been pretty cool if that was a possibility. Well, I, I don't know. If, yeah. There, there's, what, what, what is there? There's, uh, I'm looking at it right now. You get SammyShah.Autos, SammyShah.Info. <laughs> That's good. Is there uh, a .Sam? Uh, Sam? I don't, let me have a look. .Sam. Uh, no, I ah, don't think see. so. Mm. No, no, I know. Exactly. Wilson.Cam uh, is I know, I know. I I'm, I feel good. Although the only problem with it, mm-hmm. I have to admit, is that 
I have no doubt, like, you know, when you gotta like, so I've got like cam at wilson.cam, which is, mm-hmm. I think, good. But because cam is so close to com, I think people are just gonna think that I had like a brain explosion and, <laughs> and just like change it to dot cam. So I, it might backfire on me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, anyway, I'm gonna go out and do uh, find nude sammy.com.au now because you never know who might be looking. And maybe this uh, uh, strategy is pretty good. Sammy Shah.fun. I think that's, that's good. Oh, yeah. I am right, fun. We, that uh, is true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I, I, yeah. Fun people always have to tell people how fun yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, all right. That is our, that is us for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or just about uh, anywhere. And and of course, don't forget to join our podcast group on uh, Facebook, uh, which is Medocracy Podcast. Uh, thank you to Kevin McLeod for theme music, the ABC for recordings from the archive, Ruby Innes for our artwork. And as always, thanks to you, Sammy. And thank you, Cam. <laughs> <laughs>